0: Anything Combat with Johnny K.
1: Well, it's Anything Combat though. Welcome back Combats, to the Anything Combat show where we discuss everything mixed martial arts. I'm your host, Johnny K, and today we're joined by the pound-for-pound number one strength and conditioning coach in MMA right now, Stephen Seyuna. How are you, Steve?
0: I'm great, mate. Thanks for having me on.
1: All good. My first question for you is how did you actually initially get into coaching?
0: Oh, long story. Okay, so I'll try and keep it short and sweet. Um, So when I left school I uh, joined a trade, Uh, went through a number of trades, Um, I ended up getting into concreting. I became a licensed concreter. Uh, A recession happened, a little mini recession happened at the time uh, when I was a concreter and um, my life was kind of going a bit stale, uh, a bit off track, getting into trouble and stuff like that so I ended up enlisting into the Australian Army, became a rifleman um, from there I developed a passion for physical fitness and um, yeah, I became a combat fitness leader in the Australian Army and that kind of gave me the guidance that I was looking for um, with my life and what I wanted to do with my career and I fell into CrossFit started out as a CrossFit coach and um, from there I then progressed and transitioned into the corporate sector working with corporate men in the city in the CBD in Sydney and uh, I started taking up combat sports myself. At a later age, I uh, got into boxing and um, freestyle wrestling. I ruptured my Achilles uh, with freestyle wrestling. So I snapped my Achilles, I had surgery on it. And- uh, When did that
1: take place? Sorry, because I was looking on Instagram, I saw that video, but was it a recent occurrence?
0: No, nah, no, nah. this has probably happened over four years ago now. Um, but I'm still not 100%. And it's pretty much, spark, pretty much what sparked my interest into strength and conditioning for combat sports. I'll, I sat there and I was like, well, why did this happen? You know, I'm a perfectly fit human being. And, you know, I step back hundreds of times a day. If not, you know, I've, I've done it over and over again. Why did it snap on this particular occasion? So... That kind of led me down a deep dark rabbit hole of finding out why, how to train smarter um, and then also be able to relate to, to combat sport athletes that may be going through the same thing with their setbacks and it kind of sparked my passion um, to redirect my business towards combat sports. I felt like it was a very uh, rigid industry where the strength of conditioning level of expertise in my, my opinion I felt like was quite low and there was... Um, quite a gap in the market when it came to, to actually analysing movement models and, and seeing the way that, that athletes move as a human first as opposed to just performance. Um, and that's what really kind of... That's the kind of angle that I'm, I'm kind of striving for and I keep pushing towards that, is to think outside the box and get out of these rigid systems uh, and start looking at your athletes as humans first and foremost before you start you know trying to sprinkle in the fancy performance stuff and I think if we we have an open lens to that where we can actually not have a biased opinion on how things should be uh, because we've been told that way but look at what's presented in front of you and with the experience that I've had throughout the years of being a coach it's coming up to 15 years now I'm able to to look at things through a different lens and I feel like that's kind of helped a lot of the athletes that I work with that come to me with no ACLs, ruptured, you know, you know, torn labrums in their shoulders and things like that. I've been able to, to have great success with these athletes, being able to relate to them on a personal level by actually doing the sport yourself um, and kind of seeing, you know, the mental struggles that they'll have, not being able to do the things they love.
1: What's the Australian Army like? Did you enjoy your time there or...? I see that you're smiling. Uh, what can you say? What can you say about the Australian Army?
0: Look, it's it's. I've had this conversation with a lot of people, and I feel like people who were in the army only understand what it's like. Um, and trying to explain to you how I felt on a day to day basis and my experiences, it, you'll find it very hard to relate to. So, uh, there's a lot of pros and cons to it. It was. It definitely took me out of my comfort zone. But I did find that getting fed three meals a day, not having to worry about bills um, and and you know stressing about when your next paycheck is coming through was quite relaxing for me in a sense where I was concreting 10, 12 hours a day with hard labour. And here I am in the army, get to train two, three times a day and get fed three meals a day. For me, it was kind of, it was easy in that sense where it was quite enjoyable, but uh, when when I did become a qualified rifleman and I was posted to a battalion, uh, you you did start to see the cracks in the walls where you saw a lot of depression, you saw a lot of guys come back from, from deployment and, you know, were missing fingers, some may have, you know, missing legs and from IEDs and stuff like that and, you know, it's not always what it was cracked out to be and it's kind of like, training for a football game that you never get to play. Uh, and that was kind of the the biggest limitation in terms from the mental aspect for me and yeah, just kind of felt like your life wasn't going anywhere and I had to move on and go out and do something on my own and we weren't going to get any deployments anytime soon, so so that's why I pretty much went out on my own to to do what I love.
1: It's it's it sounds sounds so difficult, so interesting. So yeah, I'll, I'll move on from that because it doesn't sound like the most fun thing in the world.
0: Well, it's more like this, right? Let's say, for example, when you learn a skill and you attach fear to a skill, it gets ingrained in you, become subconscious because you're, you almost develop an anxiety or a PTSD about not not trying to, to screw up this, this execution of a certain skill. It may be stripping a weapon. It may be attention to detail. It may be, uh, for example, um, not not you know, make sure that you're not lasering your mate when you're clearing a room. Um, just just things like that where when you attach fear to a skill, and I spoke to a psychologist about it, uh, it, it almost becomes like for, you're forced to learn it at a faster rate where it's ingrained. And I think the, the attention to detail was a positive for me in my coaching aspect, but it can get a bit obsessive with everything that you do. So you know, looking at the finer details of movement models and, and the way that humans move. It's, for me, that's really, I find it calming because I can hone in on that specific topic or that, that um, you know, specific situation and really try to get to the, the nitty gritty of it all. Um, and attention to detail and, and looking, having a coach's eye is extremely important when it comes to strength and conditioning and, and looking at the way that your clients move.
1: What's their skill level when it comes to MMA in the army? Like, would you say they're top tier or would you say there's, like, room for improvement?
0: What, what, sorry, just what do you mean in, in terms of that with, as in MMA? Like, if, for,
1: they were to, if, if they were to fight professionally, like, what's their jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai and wrestling looking like?
0: What, as in, as in the military? Yes. They're not trained. We did close quarter combat, they're, they're not trained, they're not hand-to-hand skill-based like fighters. See,
1: I thought, I, thought, I thought that there would be some sort of boxing and wrestling done during military, there because is, I knew-
0: There is, but it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, it's quite different. It's more about, it's called close quarter combat and basically what it is is it's shit that will probably never work, to be honest. Right, it, someone's coming at you with a knife, and you know we learnt techniques where you know how to disarm and and where to position your body so you wouldn't cop. Is
1: that Krav Maga?
0: It's not. I wouldn't say it's Krav Maga, but it was. There was forms of jujitsu. I look back at it now. This is going back a long time ago, uh, pretty much over twelve years ago, and yeah, it was. There was forms of. BJJ. We didn't have any skilled combat sports specific coaches come in and teach us hand to hand combat, which would have been great, which would have been handy to do as as a basic level. In when you start looking at special forces like your commandos and you know your SAS, that's a different ball game, right? Where you are going to be put into those perhaps situations where you may be in a close combat um, environment where you have to defend yourself, and it's not, it's not, let's go for a takedown, it's not, it's more about, they were teaching us things where to position your hands into someone's throat to to cause, to a- actually kill the person, not, not to actually, you know, tap them out or whatever, it was you know, points of where to put your fingers in, to dig your thumbs into eyes, it was, it was quite like gruesome stuff where to position a knife, a bayonet, um, that kind of stuff, it wasn't yeah, it wasn't like let's go for a double leg takedown and go for a rear naked choke. It was it was, you know, it was stuff of to get the job done fast. And it was it was keep yourself safe. It was all about staying like it's survival instinct stuff. It's like if you look at for example, if you look at MMA and it's like all right if you really wanted to hurt a person and and really cause cause damage, you, you would put your fingers in places that you're not meant to put. you would strike to the back of the head until they wouldn't move it was it, it's It sounds horrific, but if you were overseas and you were in that situation where it was either him or you 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 had to be trained in that sense to be able to to go okay it's it's this is what it takes in order to to stay alive in that sense, like that's it's, it crazy. sounds, a, it sounds a bit fucking dramatic, but like that's what we were taught in that in that sense, like
1: yeah, from, totally, to, totally, un, totally understand. That's that's gruesome as fuck. Um, on a lighter note, I want to ask you, what's your what's your favourite uh, AFL team or rugby team?
0: Uh, mate, I honestly don't follow the rugby or the AFL, but if I had to pick a rugby team. <laughs> I grew up out west, so I'd have to choose a Parramatta Eels.
1: Okay, yeah, lovely. <laughs> um, that's I love that's great. I uh, when I train, I look at you know Mike Mensah? Yes. Yeah, when I when I focus on training, I like doing big, uh, like um, pauses in between the sets, sometimes five to ten minutes even in between a set, just to go as hard as I possibly can go with as much intensity as I can for the next set. What do you think, um, from a strength and conditioning standpoint, taking long pauses in between uh, sets does? Do you want your clients to do like one minute pauses? Or if they, if they wanted to do uh, even eight or 10 minute, would you, would you uh, allow that? Or do you just disagree with our model in general?
0: All right. First off, you're working with combat sport athletes. You're not working with powerlifters. Time is going to be a constraint, and they need to be focused on their skill set. Their skills come first. Strength and conditioning comes second. It's a small piece of the puzzle. Now, if you want to replenish ATP stores and you're resting that long in order to lift maximal weight with maximum intent and exertion, that's a different. That's a different ball game, right? That's you're chasing a strength quality, and that is not something. Um, I wouldn't train my combat sport athletes with long rest periods like that because they just don't have the time and we're working on multiple qualities within a session. So there is no one set rule of how long you should rest, how long you should, you know, how many reps you should do, how many sets you should do. It all comes down to context. It comes down to what is the adaption you're trying to achieve and what is the application that you're using to create the adaption you're looking for. So if you look at, you look at it from a combat sports sense, it's a chaotic sport in nature. It's very unpredictable. You've got many moving parts. So it's not just go into the gym and hit five by five on a deadlift at a certain rep range or a specific intensity. There's more to it. Right? You can't just have rigid systems in chaotic sports that are unpredictable. So uh, to answer your question, there is no perfect uh, rep scheme or, or rest period. It just depends on the context, on what you're trying to achieve and the adaptions you're looking for.
1: Where is your family originally from and when did they come to Australia?
0: Okay, so my father is from a Lebanese background my mother's from a Slovenian background, so Yugoslavia used to be a part of Yugoslavia when Yugoslavia was one one country. It's now obviously diverse, um, and everything's just all separated now. So, mum's from Slovenia, dad's from from a Lebanese background. My parents were born here, but my grandparents. I'm uh, more. I'd say my grandparents came here to escape the war. Um, you know, they fled to, to escape the war and, and start a better life. Uh, they, they came with, with... My grandfather came with one pair of undies, fucking a dollar to his name, nothing, and they started from scratch. And they, they worked really hard from my mum's side of things. My On my dad's side, they were like first generation Lebanese to be here um, in Australia. So I don't know exactly when they came here, the year, but they... It was, yeah, quite a long time ago. So I'd say my grandparents on my mum's side probably arrived here in in the late 50s. And on my dad's side, um, I think my grandmother would have got here around the same time.
1: What's the most common injury your clients come to you with? Is it is it shoulders or knees?
0: I'd have to say knees, to be honest. Like with... With combat sports, especially grappling, especially in grappling, it's knees, musculoskeletal injuries, um, and a lot of them are hobbyists or if I do get experienced athletes like with Isaac Michelle, William Tackett, guys that I work with at a very high level, a lot of them had MCL issues. Uh, Well, William Tackett in particular had an MCL issue from not tapping in ADCC. Um, And I guess you're going to put your body on the line in order to... To, to hold out as long as you can and you will risk an MCL in order to, to advance into that competition and perhaps get a, get a medal there. So that was one of the, yeah, that's, that's the biggest injuries. With Isaac, on the other hand, it was more meniscus just from passing, trying to pass guard. Uh, you know, when you see BJJ, a lot of it has deep knee flexion where you, where you have to produce force. You've got, particularly when you're passing guard, if someone locks your leg down, Um, and you're trying to push out of it with your free leg, the knee goes into a lot of flexion, and then you are pushing with a concentric contraction at end ranges in, in odd positions. And feeling the demands myself by doing the sport, I can see why guys would get kind of cranky knees being in these deep ranges of motion where they're producing force. So training that in the gym and exposing yourself to to stresses that may be indirect to the sport, but are definitely going to have a positive transfer. is training those positions or similar actions um, that train the muscle groups that are going to be exposed to that stress uh, while you're rolling on the mats.
1: How important is neck training? Is it underrated and why do you do it?
0: It's extremely important. It's one of the key resilient sites of the body that are exposed to repetitive forces. I, I think in BJJ they don't do enough neck work. In freestyle wrestling, we do heaps of it. We do a lot of bridging, a lot of advanced stuff. However, it's not enough to fill in the gaps, right? Say you tweak your knee, uh, tweak your neck in uh, in wrestling or grappling scrambles or whatever it may be. You, you, oftentimes, you can't go into the onto the wrestling mats and perform you know compression with axle loading through movement such as a wrestling bridge it might just make things crankier so we need to fill in the gaps that they're not getting by utilizing isometrics banded work to train the neck um, in just different contractions different stress but obviously regress it and expose them to 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 pretty much physical qualities that they're not going to get from the sport. Because it's dynamic, it's fast, you're getting neck cranks, someone puts a jumping guillotine on and, and cranks the shit out of your neck and it, it just gets sore. It's one of the, the first sights that, that people are going to swing off with heavy snap downs, they're going to put, you know, put you in headlocks, they're going to sprawl on your head, they're going to do shit to you. You might roll an odd way, you might do a greenby roll where you might, you might roll in an awkward position, you may get stacked um, where they push their legs way far behind you and you get a lot of compression through flexion and it doesn't feel nice. So neck work is extremely important. It's, it's one of the, the key resilience sites that I microdose throughout my programs with my, my online grappling sports performance program with, with all my, my fighters and, and combat sport athletes. Um, it's just like the, the elbows, the knees, uh, the wrists, These are all key resilience sites that that are exposed to to high forces with a lot of torque going through it. So um, it does need direct attention and and it is something that can be overlooked and coaches seem to demonise wrestling bridges saying that, you know, compression, axle loading with rotation and movement is dangerous for your neck. Well, it's only dangerous for individuals that don't have the capacity to be there. And I think that there are no bad exercises or dangerous exercises. It's just that that athlete or that individual is not ready for that particular stress, and it's not the exercise fault. It's a poor understanding of prescription, um, load management, and execution of the exercise.
1: What's the most optimal split for your strength and conditioning and MMA together? Some people have told me you need to... sorry. Some people have told me that you need to do six months of strength and conditioning and then do your six months of MMA. And I was like, I don't don't think that's that, I don't think the discipline's there, nor do I think that's actually effective. So, what would you say?
0: okay, uh, well, yeah, I don't know who's told you that. Like, you can't, <laughs> this is the thing, right? Some
1: guy at the gym, some guy at the gym some, told me. I was like, yeah, I don't think
0: so. Who does some bro splits? And this is the issue with the industry because it's fairly new, right? We're not just talking about MMA here. We're talking about, you know, you see it in boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai. You see it across all the different arts, right? Um, the, the key factor here is to understand that there are no optimal splits, yeah, you've got to look at constraints outside of the sport and that may be time, access to equipment. It may be, um, you know, do they have pre-existing injuries or niggles that you have to work around? These are all constraints you need to take into the equation when you look at, let's say, perhaps, I don't like using the word optimal, but let's say, um, you know, a preferred choice of a split, right? So if I have a time constraint and I have athletes uh, who are practicing their skills on a regular basis, and some of those days are intense and have high training load versus low training load where, where there's less stimulus, we need to look at a split that covers all ends, that works on multiple qualities throughout the year. I don't like the idea of focusing on strength blocks, moving into a power block, and rinsing and repeating that process over and over again. What happens is you start favoring a particular quality at the sacrifice for another quality. And that comes down to shitty rigid systems with S&C coaches using an algorithmic model that is still present to this day, that needs to just, it kind of needs to fuck off, honestly. And it frustrates me because you can have it all. You just need to understand concurrent training models that actually Like just common sense, good program design where, for me, I work on multiple qualities. It's plyometric development. We work on strength. We work on secondary exercises to work on, let's say, unilateral strength from left to right sides. We work on on key resilience sites to build robustness in, in areas that are exposed to repetitive forces. So you need to do it all. And if you have limited time with an athlete, let's say most combat sport athletes I work with, the, at the best, have maybe three days a week to invest into strength and conditioning that a full-time athletes getting paid to do that as a sport. Let's say you don't have that luxury and you've got hobbyists who aren't getting paid uh, and they have one to two days to invest into their s per week, you're like, well, what, what can I do with this guy in one to two days per week to create some change within their athletic capabilities to have a positive transfer to their sport? And the only real way you can do that is perhaps maybe utilising a full-body layout where they're not going to be too sore to express their skill set the following day. Now, that split routine in terms of full body seems to work well. I've had great success with my combat sport athletes who, are, who have signed up to Grappling Sports Performance and have taken part in Builder Basics 101 just as just a six-week kickstart strength and conditioning program. Now, doing the sport yourself, you can feel the demands, right? I come back from grappling. I feel like a cripple some days. The next day I walk in and I'm like, I just need to move around. Everything's a bit sore. Not just one thing. My necks or my backs, or you know, elbows are a little bit tender. And I usually find that getting a full body approach in there just to get things moving again seems to be the the, the biggest bang for your buck when it comes with time-poor individuals who need to spend and invest their energy, uh, investing their, into their skill set to make them better combat sport athletes.
1: When we talk about martial arts, I want to know which athletes. Are better. And when I mean by better, I mean mobility, strength, endurance, cardio, and just athletic performance in general. Would you say the grapplers are better or the strikers are better? I heard you say something about wrestlers being the superior. So um, who would you pick?
0: Okay, so if you look at, if you're talking purely from an athletic standpoint in pure athleticism, if you get a freestyle wrestler who's been wrestling from a young age, and you look at the way that they move from a movement perspective and the dynamic uh, sport in nature, the mobility, the, the strength, the positions they can get into, the vulnerable positions they can get into and produce force at a rapid rate. Freestyle wrestlers by far are some of the most freak athletes I've seen by far. And I, I've, I've had got a the-
1: question. Sorry, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt about that. When I was watching your Instagram, I saw something about you know kids in russia how they get these sambo kids to just um, work on their tendons and their and and just mobility in general for wrestling if you don't do that when you're a young kid and you're fully grown can you get that level of tendon strength afterwards or or is it is it gone if you haven't done it in your in your childhood
0: so all right so we're jumping from 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 question to question but yeah. Sorry, I so, can't
1: interrupt it, but I'm excited about that question.
0: Okay, well, so I just had a great podcast with Jake Tara. Jake Tara is a, is a strength and conditioning coach um, who works a lot with um, field-based uh, athletes like in basketball. Well, not field-based, but like court-based, like basketball. And, you know, he's got, he's got some great protocols on tendon health and the remodeling process of that. We had a great discussion. One of the discussions was – By the time you turn age 17, your joints, your tendons, your ligaments are fully formed at 17. Now, when you take part in a combat sport like me, like being a shitty stiff mover who took up freestyle wrestling at age 33 and trying to get into those vulnerable positions, you have a very limited game and skill set where it's not going to feel great on your body. I've seen some guys um, do really well roughly between ages 16 to, to 21 who've taken up freestyle wrestling then and have had some awesome changes and look like they've been wrestling for a very long time. Now, you do develop tendon resiliency in your youth, but it doesn't come from specifically, all right, guys, we're going to do some isometrics when you're six years old. You're naturally going to get it from playing. More variability and you look at freestyle wrestling, look at the variability in movement that you're seeing. You're seeing so much variability. And you look at guys who are older, and they'll lean more towards Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's a slower game. It's not as dynamic. You're not going to be forced into extreme vulnerable positions at a fast, rapid rate. And I think 99... You look at... uh, Grapplers, uh, sorry, BJJ guys, they're doing it in their 60s and 70s and they're still having great success. So I definitely think it is more geared towards an older man's sport where you can get away with it. Um, however, I just purely love freestyle wrestling and the grind of it. I like the high pace. I like feeling gassed to the point where you can't breathe and you've... you've you know, you, just that lactic buildup and that, you know, that, that high glycotic output. For me, that is pure enjoyment um, from a, a grinding nature that I love. I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. Now with BJJ, I, I don't like to move slow. I like to move fast and utilize that high tempo because I like to get a good workout. For me, it's, it's more about just chasing a stimulus as well. But yeah, freestyle wrestlers from a, a pure athletic standpoint, they are, are freak athletes. And when you look at Greco, they are fucking strong. Like they, they will just maul freestyle wrestlers if it was just wrestled above from a strength perspective, right? They're two different sports. But I've had the luxury and the pleasure of training with... Um, my my coach, who's originally from Slovakia, and we have a guy here from Siberia, um, who's you know spent a lot of time in Dagestan and and Russia, and I've had some great conversations. And I look at the way that they wrestle, and I don't wrestle them. It, it's I would get broken straight away. Just just how dynamic and hard they train for European Championships and things like that. I've I've seen I've seen these guys with no ACLs, still with no ACLs, um, compete at the highest level and just ignore it and, and will, will put their bodies on the line and just go, I'll get surgery after I finish competing when I'm ready to retire. Um, I've seen them bust ribs in training and continue. I have hear them, you know, win themselves and, and to the point where, you know, you hear them wince in pain like, like deep, you know, pain where it was like, it would send a lot of guys on the sidelines, but they continue to go. It's just they are, they are fucking tough human beings. And I think anyone that's freestyle wrestled uh, at a high level will understand the, the culture and the mindset behind it. And you see them do really well in the transition to MMA. They have the gas tank. They have the grind. They can continue to, to go after single leg, double legs against the cage, and, and just have that persistence um, where I think is a, is an advantage to be able to control your opponent and take the fight to wherever you want to take it
1: Steve, about the ACL let's say, let's say someone shredded their ACL, what does that even look like like I don't understand how people can step on the, like with their feet, using their leg if the ACL is already gone I don't understand how you can well, stand upright
0: well you can right, like so you've got you still got your meniscus your pcl your lcl like you've got a lot of other things that still may be intact now there are some odd cases where some athletes are lucky enough to just rupture their acl without doing any further damage towards the mcl or the meniscus pcl or lcl right so They're perfect candidates to go into a a brace protocol where they don't require surgery, and they use um, an immobilisation technique where they brace the knee at a certain degree um, for a period of time and increase that certain degree and then come back to to playing um, competitive sport after they've done their return to sport protocol. Um, So you can... I've seen some horrific stuff happen, and I've seen guys come out of it and still compete Um, with no ACL so I've had guys come into me you know that have had underlying partial tears in their ACL and have had a fall or done an awkward throw um, in BJJ and someone's landed on their leg funny and they've had that kind of finish a job off with some meniscus damage and they've gone down the non-surgical route and that took six months um six to nine months of, of good solid s work with myself and physios and we've had them sit down with surgeons and the surgeons have said, look, I don't recommend getting the, the surgery depending on the way that you're moving and, and how strong you are and the stability you have, you may, be, you may not need to get it. But me, in my personal opinion, if I was a full-time athlete, and, and I ruptured, touch wood, I ruptured an ACL or you did some sort of, uh, let's say an ACL and you had some MCL damage with that with the, and a meniscus and my goal was to get back onto the mat and compete again, I would definitely opt for the surgery.
1: Is running bad for your knees?
0: No, nothing's bad for your body. Nothing is bad for your body. It just comes down to a poor understanding of exercise selection for that individual, a poor understanding of the load management and execution.
1: Which fighters have you trained in strength and conditioning? Would we know these people?
0: Yes, you would know some of them.
1: Yep. H- what's the list? I-
0: Isaac Michelle, William Tackett, they're more grapplers. Josh Orsop. Um, I've got a few guys on grappling sports performance who. Who are pro mma fighters at a very low level um, and then i've got some other guys that work with me directly currently now that have had a few pro mma fights not at a very high level and <laughs> funny enough i've seen some of volkanovsky's strength and conditioning and yeah i was quite surprised at what was being done and it just goes What, did you think it was shit? I'm not going to say anything, but I do think that you could do it a lot better. Um, and I'm not going to... Yeah, from what I saw, it just... Seems like every other fighter's strength and conditioning program.
1: I see, I see, okay. A bit, as the Australians say, how you going? So, you're pretty, you're pretty lean you're pretty lean and you're big I would consider you like like uh, you got a lot of muscle mass I want to know what your cardio is like personally
0: uh, it's not too bad I pretty much do most of my cardio I'm only 80 kilos man I'm not big so yeah I'm not you I'm look not big though uh, maybe it's just the angle that you see on social media <laughs> I'm definitely not big I'm only 510 I'm 100, 178 centimeters and I weigh 80 kilos so definitely not big Um, but yeah, in terms of like my conditioning, I, I, I like to go to, to a point where, where I'm spent. Um, in terms of like aerobic conditioning, I'd say I'm very aerobically well-rounded from investing a lot of time into it indirectly. Uh, so I do spend a lot of time working on cyclical methods like the air bike or just going for like a light slow jog, just to be able to to train that that lower end of threshold training to help with recovery and just general movement. Um, from some of the guys I train with in a wrestling sense, um, I think it's okay. I've been pushed to breaking points, doing dog fighting rounds where that you know that's expected. Just depending on your style, I like to keep moving and and moving hard and fast. But I'd say conditioning is okay. Um, Especially 80 kilos of body weight, you definitely want it to be okay.
1: When you're not training, what else are you doing? What are your hobbies? Uh,
0: I'm a family man. So I'm either working or I'm spending time with my family. Um, But Or I'm actually, I'm a bit of a nerd. I'm a bit of a geek in that sense. I like to... So obviously, refine my craft and re- research certain topics just because I actually enjoy it. The, the thirst for, for learning more, um, it motivates me to get out of bed in the morning. I, I feel like coaching is not enough for me for fulfilment. I, I need to continually keep learning or I go stale and I get bored and I feel like I'm not making any progress as a coach. So I spend a lot of time investing into into learning new skills learning new new concepts new models new systems new principles whatever it may be to to make me a better coach or whatever I'm interested in in a particular topic that I feel like I don't know enough about I will continually try to push that in that sense
1: when you do your research, what is a particular exercise that you see people doing all the time that you hate, that you think is either redundant or you think people would get injuries from that they're doing like right now?
0: I don't think they're going to get injuries from, from, from any exercise. It's just more about a poor understanding of execution. Again, the prescription, um, and then obviously load management. So with, um, Something that I do see that really pisses me off is not getting athletes to train to a full range of motion. Uh, Training combat sport athletes like sprinters utilizing partial reps, shortened positions, because they want to reduce eccentric loading and soreness on the body. Um, My honest opinion with that is if you want to work on concentric output, just choose a different exercise for that sense. I would perhaps look at utilising, you know, plyometrics if you're looking to chase that stimulus. But if you're getting guys you utilising partial reps to reduce muscle soreness and to not take anything away from their skill set, I would just lighten the load and train to a full range of motion. So you're not losing those capabilities or or capacity in terms of range, or perhaps utilising a different exercise altogether. Um, one thing that shits me uh, with squatting is people trying to spread the floor. People trying to push their knees out into the frontal plane um, and trying to push off the outside of their foot uh, and placing the bar on their back. Getting every single fucking client to back squat um, and training their their combat sport athletes like power lifters, where they're just going to compress the shit out of their fighters, where they can't move and rotate and be able to express their skills at a high level. So you, I like to obviously anterior load the weight in front of them just allows for a better a better path um, allows for them to push a center of mass back where they can actually achieve deeper hip flexion and internal rotation, which at the end of the day you see great positive transfer from athletes training to a full range of motion as opposed to to using partial reps um, i've had great success with my combat sport athletes <clears throat> all year round by utilizing these principles and the issue is coaches don't know how to get their clients into squatting to a full range of depth just by not positioning the bar in the right spot, not using the right heel elevation to to actually help with, with getting them to sit back and be able to access these deeper ranges of motion. Um, so yeah, the squat pattern is number one, that, that pisses me off, um, and using hurdles in their plyometrics, using constraints. I'm not a fucking fan of constraints. Using a constraint-based um, hurdle approach with with fighters, we just need to get them working on locomotive patterns with extensive plyometrics and and getting them into deeper ranges of motion at higher velocities, and then exposing them to the to more intense variations without the constraints of hurdles.
1: When I was looking at your page, I I was I was in the gym and I was punching with dumbbells. Oh, and no. then I looked at your page, and it said some shit like, why punching with dumbbells is redundant? And I was like, this fucking guy, I can't, I can't believe <laughs> him. I can't believe how could he say this. <laughs> so so what can you tell me about that, and am I an idiot?
0: You. The thing is, no one's an idiot, right? It's just you. you've probably been told by an old-school boxing coach or you've gone to a boxing class, where they, they use these old school methods of shadow boxing with one or two kilo dumbbells. And they may do it to, to think that they're building endurance in the upper body. But if you actually look at what the weight does pulling the arm down, it just overloads the anterior part of the shoulder. And that actually changes the force production of where you want to produce force, right? Let's say it's, it's horizontal force production with a punch. So by having the dumbbell where it's forcing you down and you're having to to actually work against that, it's not going to improve your technique. It's actually probably going to inhibit the way that you throw a punch and it's going to alter the way that you, you actually move into that position. And it's just going to load up the shit out of your anterior part of your shoulder. Now, as a fighter and as a boxer, if you're already punching a lot, you're using copious amounts of your anterior deltoid already. Right, and a lot of it is anterior where you are getting the compression at the front you're shortening the tissues at the front, you're lengthening everything at the back in order to 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 be able to punch the person in front of you so my my advice is to if you're going to try and if you want to improve punching power a number one you've got to refine your technique you've got to hit the heavy bag. Then on That is the most specific way of improving punching power. Then you've got to look at force transmission, the, the ability to transfer energy from the feet into the hips, into the spine, and then finishing into the arm. These are qualities that you can work on in the gym. And then I, I hear people like... Uh, you know, punches are born punches, you know, and you either have it or you don't, you know, and, and punches are a fucking, you know, it just, it is, yes, definitely, that, that definitely does have some merit to it. But if you have a, a seasoned fighter who hasn't tapped into enhancing those thresholds in a controlled environment, it, it, may, it definitely may have a big fucking positive transfer in terms of athleticism and building a robust body to, to be able to withstand the demands of boxing and striking.
1: Who is your favorite fighter of all time and why?
0: Khabib. Khabib. I don't know, man. I just got a soft spot for him. I just, just the, just the way he, just the way the man is in life. You know, just the relationship he had with his father, um, and how humble he is, and didn't get steered in any different direction from all the success he made. He stayed true to his roots, his faith, um, and dominated like I've never seen anyone dominate. In MMA. Um, yeah.
1: Yep, go on.
0: And if it's boxing, it's Mike Tyson. I just, <laughs> just, I, I, again, I have another soft spot for Mike Tyson. I don't know why, but I guess it was his upbringing. Um, I don't think we saw the best of Mike Tyson. I think we, we didn't get to see him dominate like we should have. And the way that they, they, Fighter grew up and what he went through as a child. It's surprising to, to see that he could have been a fucking serial killer for what he went through. The trauma that that, that, that fighter went through to be to where he is to become the heavyweight champion of the world, um, you know, was it was good for him to channel that energy into becoming something great as opposed to something that could perhaps be, you know, quite dark in that sense. Um, yeah, I think it's two ends of the spectrum. You've got Khabib, and then you've got you know Mike Tyson. In that sense, they're probably two of my fi- favorite fighters. Um, in terms of the, I would say the modern day era in that sense of Khabib, and I wouldn't even say an old time era for I'd say the '90s for, for Mike Tyson.
1: Skill for skill, who do you think's better, Makachev or Khabib? Khabib. But why? Think, don't you think that? Don't you think that Makachev, like Makachev, did win the gold medal in Sambo?
0: I think Makachev may be a better striker than Khabib from a striking perspective, but after watching Volkanovski against Islam, kind of, it kind of changed my perception on. On, or maybe Volkanovski's just a fucking freak and I'm starting to think pound for pound, this guy's probably my, my favourite fighter of all time as well. Uh, just the way he he went up a division and the way that he, he was defending those takedowns, I was able to get back to his feet and, and really give Islam a run for his money. I don't think you would have seen the same success with the way Khabib wrestles. I just think I just think his his wrestling and grinding ability is probably going to outdo Islam in that sense. I don't I see say, I, I say. don't see Khabib ever having an issue. But he's had some hot, Arman Su- Su- Sukarian, the the guy who's fuck that was a close fight. They had he's a beast and uh, he's a great wrestler too. That was a very close fight. I'd be, I like Islam, but I, I'm just not a, I don't know, man. I'm just, after the Volkanovski fight, I'm not Not 100% sold on him. Never competed in the cage, uh, probably won't. I'm 37 now. Um, I did dabble a little bit with some MMA sparring, and I have a lot more respect for the sport, for what these guys do with those four-ounce gloves on. Um, even just getting just just little rabbit punches. to the, Putting your body on the line like that, I guess my younger self, had I been in my early 20s and I was exposed to combat sports then and felt a passion for it then, I probably would have had a fight to test myself. Um, but now at my age, probably not. I'd probably do it look like a, a local grappling competition, but yeah, I don't have any aspirations to do it now. And if I did... I would just channel all my energy into that. I'd hire coaches. I I would do it properly. I'd put myself in a proper fight camp because I know what it takes. Even though if it's just some some bloody amateur fucking nobody competition, I would still hit it with 110% with a fucking rocky mindset and I would go balls to the wall with nutrition, strength and conditioning, striking. I'd get striking PT coaches. I'd get wrestling coaches. I'd do it all. I don't train muscle groups. I talk more about movement patterns. So I I try to get out of the mindset of just focusing on particular muscles. I'm more interested with how muscles interact with each other. Pretty much, even though I've got the skinniest legs on social media, I don't skip leg day, no.